你要飛，不如我哋由頭再嚟過。Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an agent cinema podcast. I'm John, and with me, as always, is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, John. How are you? I'm doing fine as well.、Uh, same as usual, I guess. All right, so today we'll continue our coverage of the '90s of Asian cinema of the '90s, and we're talking about Wong Kar Wai's 1997 film Happy Together. But before we get to that, Jason, what have you been watching or reading、uh, or Anything, any other kind of media that you've been consuming in the last couple of weeks? I recently finished watching Blade of the Immortal,、uh, the anime adaptation, which is on Amazon Prime. It's a twenty-four episode anime, and、um, if I had to describe it, I would say it's like Lone Wolf and Cub, but grislier and gorier,、um, due to the fact that the lead character,、uh, a bodyguard for hire named Manji. Has an immortal body, so he can be sliced and diced,、um, but he puts himself back together again. And、uh, it's it goes off to a it gets off to a slow start, but it picks up、uh, in terms of the story as a huge cast of characters are introduced, and they're mostly memorable、uh, due to the fact that they wield all sorts of different weapons. I should probably explain the setting. It takes place in Edo era Japan, so this is a time of the shogun and the samurai. And、um, the lead character Manji, he's a bodyguard for hire. He's being hired by、uh, a young woman named Rin. I think she's 16 years old in the anime, and、um, she wants to take revenge、uh, for the death of her parents.、Um, and her target is the master of、uh, a group of swordsmen,、uh, who is also the target of the shogun's forces. So lots of、um, different battles happen throughout. Uh, the series and、uh, it's it's really violent.、Um, there's、uh, rape and torture in there as well,、uh, but it's very well made.、Uh, great animation, music, and、um, some great voice acting as well. And you said that's available on Prime, right? Yeah, that's available on Amazon Prime. All twenty four episodes.、Um, there's a- other anime on there as well.、Um, that's the first one I've watched. Oh, I started watching Inuyashiki, but I didn't finish it. Two other films I've watched on Amazon Prime are Leaving DC and The Caretaker.、Um, they're low-budget horror movies by an indie filmmaker named Josh Chris,、uh, an American, and they were both recommended to me by my mother.、Um, they they're okay. They build up some good atmosphere as、uh, like his character. He he takes on lead roles in the films, and his character ends up being haunted and、uh, meeting a, a grisly end.、Um, they they have good atmosphere, some funny moments in them. Uh, I've also on Amazon Prime is Peninsula, the sequel to Train to Busan. 
So I've got that ready to watch. And um, I watched three Wong Kar Wai films um, in preparation for the podcast. As tears go by, um, days of being wild and happy together. All right. Yeah, I think I've seen... I'm not sure if I've seen As Tears Go By. I might have. Definitely seen Days of Being Wild. Yeah, that's pretty much what I've been doing. Um, Unless you consider... um, like wasting my time on the PlayStation Network store. <laughs> um, oh. Uh, relevant because uh, Sony announced that they would be closing the Vita, PlayStation 3, and PSP stores um, later this year. So I've been looking at what games I want to download from there. And I've If I still had my PlayStation, my PlayStation 3, I would, uh, that news would bother me. But since I don't, uh, uh, I, I've heard about, I've, I, I've heard of that, but I, it's, it's, I didn't pay much attention to it, I guess. Yeah, it came as a bit of a shock announcement for gamers and for developers who weren't given much warning uh, that the stores stores were closing. So you've got people who are currently developing PlayStation Vita games and um, they may not be able to see the light of day and the games that are already on the stores could disappear forever. Um, people are puzzled as to why Sony are uh, closing down the stores. Obviously, there's a commercial angle to this, which is they're not making as much money as uh, they sh- as Sony would want them to. But um, there's the question of a video game preservation as well, because these stores are some of the only ways you can access these games. Uh, and so like maybe Sony plans on creating a new store uh, where they can bring everything together for PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 owners. I, it's all a bit of a shock, really. I think that's about all I've um, been doing this week in terms of uh, media I've consumed. Okay. Uh, well, for me, it was a bit of a busy week. I watched uh, a bunch of Buster Keaton movies, uh, some that I hadn't seen, like uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. and um, Seven Chances. Uh, and I watched a bunch that I had seen, like The General and uh, Sherlock Jr. or Sherlock Jr., however you pronounce that. I was uh, Jr., I suppose. Okay, yeah. Um, what else? I, I watched a movie, a Hong Kong film for, for V Cinema called Beyond the Dream about a a person, a young person dealing with schizophrenia. It was a pretty good film. Mm. Um, a really good, you know, both, I was impressed both by the story but also the technical aspect of the film how the director was able to kind of visualize the the main character schizophrenia uh, there are some uh you know for people who are familiar with psychology they're probably going to not a lot of scientific inaccuracies in the film but i don't think they are that significant and as to you know be disrespectful or anything i think the dramatic licenses that they took were i think good enough I read a, a, a short book by Ursula K. Le Guin uh, called Buffalo Gals, Won't You Come Out Tonight? It's kind of like a fantasy novella, I think, short story novella, uh, somewhere around that length. Uh, it was pretty enjoyable. Um, and, and of course, you know, reading and watching work on Y films in preparation for t- t- uh, uh, today's episode. Oh, and um, uh, oh, another thing, I finally decided to give the cinemas a try. So I watched two movies in the theaters. I watched Godzilla vs. Kong, and I also uh. watched Minari on the theaters. And I, I'm, I'm sure uh, you'll remember last time how I complained that the Minari was 20 bucks yeah. uh, for, for digital. I, I only paid five bucks to see it on the cinema. That's a big difference. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge difference. But um, 
Yeah, I was, um, you know, Godzilla versus Kong, I'm not going to comment on that one. It is what it is. But uh, Minari was a pretty good film. Uh, without you, that without giving too many details about it, it's. I've read online reviews of people making it out to be almost a masterpiece, and I don't think I would go as far. I think it's it's a fairly good drama, um, a significant and important you know story, but you know it's a a good film. That's that's as 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 higher praise as I would give it. Um, I don't know if you've seen it yet. Uh, no. Okay. It's, it's, it's about a Korean family that emigrates to the U S in the eighties and are trying to sort of start a farm. And, you know, obviously they're, they're having some trouble doing that. Yeah. I I saw a trailer for it and, um, I'm vaguely aware of it. It's, uh, Stephen Yoon, is it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, from the walking dead. Yeah, so I think the the it's a Korean cast and Americans, but they're of Korean origin. I think only the one actress is actually from Korea. This the uh, grandmother. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, I, I will say if you're going in and expecting, you know, a Korean film in the style that you've seen from South Korea, don't because it's not at all. It feels very much like an American indie film. It's just it just happens to be you know, by Korean actors shot in Korean, but that's, it still feels like an American film. Not that that's a negative. I'm just saying, you know, you don't expect there to see a South, you know, a movie, uh, a South Korean film. Yes. Yeah, the immigrant experience, the Korean immigrant experience. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. And that's, I think that's it for, uh, for my media consumption in the last couple of weeks. Okay, so next we go into our news segment, and I've written down a couple of a few news items here. I'm if, if, I'm not sure if you'd like to add any, but uh, the first thing that I have here is that the Hong Kong Film Festival is currently going on. It'll be going on until uh, Asia, I mean, until April 14. And uh, I should have done a better job at researching this, but I think there it is possible to access it online, or at least a portion of it online. Yeah, it is online, and I think it's limited to the U. Uh, are we talking about the UK one, or is it the Hong Kong International Film Festival? International Film Festival. Okay, I haven't looked into this one. Okay, uh, so check it out. Um, the but what about the UK one? I think that's the Focus Hong Kong one that you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. So Unt- uh, until when I haven't is checked that? that one out. I haven't checked that one out. I think that must be ending soon. That must be ending soon. So maybe maybe it will still be up by the time this episode is uploaded. It's worth a check out. Uh, and what's what's the name of that one? Uh, I I cannot remember. I know I've retweeted them a couple of times, but I haven't had a chance to look. If you search Focus Hong Kong UK, you'll find it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the other thing that kind of caught my eye was that the Human Condition trilogy by Masaki Kobayashi is uh, getting a Blu-ray release by Criterion sometime in June. Of course, it's 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 available on the Criterion cha- channel if you subscribe to it, but that's only available in the U.S. So if you're looking for a Blu-ray release of that of that trilogy, um, it's going to be coming out sometime in June. There's a a Blu-ray release in the UK put out by Arrow Films. Okay, that was a couple of years ago. Okay, yeah. So this one is by Criteria, Criterion. So I, I, I think the you can expect some good extras from the Criterion release. Although I, I'm not familiar with the Arrow, so that might be might have some pretty good extras too. 
Okay, and the last item, uh, news item that I have here is the Berlin Film Festival. Um, the it was this year due to the coronavirus was split in two. The first part for the critics only took place in March, February, March, some some something around that time, and then there's going to be an, an audience and something open to the audience, which I do think has an online portion, uh, which will happen in June. And there is this, some Asian films there present, which is why it's in, in our news section. So that's something also to check out. The Berlin Film Festival is obviously a very big and, and famous film festival, and the fact that it's available is going to be available, or at least a part of it is going to be available online it's going to give a lot of people an opportunity to check it out yeah it was available from march 1st to the 5th uh, and that was like an industry event so yes. you had the european film markets and uh, critics could see what was programmed and that was only in person yeah physical mm, and like uh co-production markets and berlinale talents and so forth and the one that's open for the public is um the summer special from june 9th to the 20th Yes. And uh, I I covered this earlier in the year. Um, there are two Japanese films, um, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, who uh, listeners may know uh, as being the director of Happy Hour, the um, 2015 film, and Asako 1 and 2, which uh, played at the Cannes Film Festival in 2018. And uh, I believe... Um, Hong Sang-so has a film there from South Korea. Yeah, uh, there I were think, quite a few Chinese films as well. Yes, yeah. So like I said, there's a, about five to six Asian films in the festival total. Not sure all of them are in the com- main competition, but they're going to be available to watch, I believe. Yeah, the Ryusuke Hamaguchi film won uh, runner-up uh, at the Grand Jury Prize. Oh, nice. And another Japanese film to watch out for is A Balance by Yujiro Harumoto, which, won, which was a co-winner of the... Um, New Currents Award at the Busan Film Festival last year. Okay. Okay, so that's that's it for our news segment. Is there anything that you'd like to add? Um, that's it. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of the things that caught my eye this uh, uh, this week. Nothing kind of important, I think, but uh, nothing groundbreaking. Okay, so after we've covered that, we can now jump into our main, the main discussion of our film. As always, Jason, would you like to give us a plot summary of Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai? So, Happy Together is Wong Kar Wai's sixth film and his first production set outside of Hong Kong. Drawn by his interest in Latin American music, literature and football, he travelled to Argentina armed only with a loose outline of a story, a few pieces of music and some images, as well as Tony Leung and Leslie Chung, two of Hong Kong's biggest stars who act out a doomed romance. So, Tony Leung? plays Lai Yao Fei, and Leslie Chung is Ho Wo Ping, two lovers driving through Argentina on a journey that is meant to renew their relationship. Their destination is the Iguazo Falls, but before they can get there, mishaps and personality clashes see the two split up. Ho leaves to Buenos Aires, where he takes up work as a hustler, while Lai is left heartbroken and working at the tango bar in a different part of the city. Lai attempts to carry on, but is consumed with the idea of starting over with Ho and being happy together. Okay, uh, thank you, Jason. So normally at this time I ask, you know, when did you first see this film and what did you think of it? And I'm still going to ask that, but I would also like to add to that question, what's your history with uh, Wong Kar Wai films in addition to Happy Together? So I think my first Wong Kar Wai film 
was Chungking Express, which I bought on DVD. And that was when I was in high school and that had such a like profound impact on me. I think that's a common story of anybody who's encountered Bon Carway. They changed their perception of what um like a romantic comedy could be or what Hong Kong film could be. Um and then that was I think that was around the time In the Mood for Love came out. And um I, I was blown away by that one. Um and it was like a totally different um tone, change of story. And Happy Together was the third film that I uh watched. I bought the Artificial Eye DVD, uh, which was released in the UK, and um, I, I was really impressed. Um, like the story itself is like very raw um, take on a doomed romance. Um, it has all of Wong Kar Wai's sort of trademarks, such as, uh, such as like the visual aesthetics and the use of music, and two fantastic performances: um, one by Tony Leung and the other by Leslie Chung, and um, Again, it sort of radically changed how I sort of could perceive uh, relationship dramas that uh, could be made in terms of like the atmosphere that's created by Wong Kar Wai, which is his specialty. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think I think I've mentioned it before uh, in this podcast that you know I also was um, familiarized with Wong Kar Wai in high school, and I think that's the best time. To to be to get acquainted with uh, Wong Kar Wai, he's, he's all his films, especially the things that he did in the '90s, have a very uh, adolescent quality about them. Not, and I don't mean that in any negative way. I mean that in a sort of energetic, not naive, but they have that kind of innocence almost to them. Yeah, and uh, I think the first film that I that I saw of him um, uh, was uh, 2046, and I had no idea what I was getting into. I only watched it because um i i saw it referenced in some in a review of another film completely unrelated which i don't remember and i thought it was a science fiction film it, and i was completely you know blown away that it was nothing like i expected and i know that 2046 some people um is not everyone's favorite of Wong Kar Wai in fact some people don't even consider it to be a good film at all uh, depending on who you ask, I guess, but it it holds a special place in my heart just because of you know it was the first one card Y that I uh, that I saw, and I don't remember the order exactly, but then I just kind of you know wanted to see everything by him, uh, and and uh, I think I think hap- when I got to Happy Together, I think that became my favorite film because of my favorite one card Y film, and it still is because of you know everything that you mentioned. It's so raw. It's so it's 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 experimental without focusing on the experiment if that makes any sense and we'll talk about this when we later when we get into the technical details but there were so many things about it that i think stand out and like you said it does redefine uh it does redefine how romance can be but it's also at the same time it doesn't because nothing like this exists except there's elements of it in other Wong Kar Wai films but it's not like it's not like other, maybe with a few exceptions, so like other filmmakers saw Warren Conway's romances and said, let's make more like this. They just kind of firmly exist into this, you know, Wong Kar Wai universe and they just, they're isolated there. Like in many Wong Kar Wai films where there's almost in every Wong Kar Wai film, there is something about a secret, like, you know, in, in The Mood for Love and in 2046 where he has to whisper uh, the secrets into a hole. Uh, 
there's that sense of isolation and that's how I feel about Wonka Wai films they're they're not while there are many people's favorites they're not something that easily inspires uh replication yeah i can see like in the hong kong film industry he stands alone it's a very commercial film industry to begin with and his first film um as tears go by sort of like is as commercial as he got um he became much more experimental especially working with um uh cinematographer christopher doyle and um production Who is designer australian if i'm not mistaken i've yeah, he's Australian, and uh, I think he was uh, in the Merchant Navy, and then he washed up ashore in Hong Kong. Yeah, something like that. And uh, production designer and editor William Chang. So, uh, like the, his close collaborators, who he worked with throughout, like nearly all of his productions from the start. And um, their relationship is uh, so close um, that. Uh, they influence each other's work and um like one person could be brought in late in the production and can like extend what the vision of another person wants to do and you don't see uh, any films of this sort made by any other filmmaker anywhere else and i think it's because Wong Kar Wai has a particular style especially story wise like his stories tend to focus on the same thing uh things doomed relationships and there are character archetypes like um people who are wandering and people who are mourning over a lost relationship and you see variations of this um and these close collaborators can bring out and accentuate different emotional beats in the stories and um Wong Kar-wai has idiosyncratic uh musical tastes as well which helps add expand uh, and add to the universe and expand to it yeah and i think he is the most um the one of the best filmmakers that knows how to break the rules without uh without and i, I mean this might be my go to you know credit might go to uh, christopher doyle as well for this but there is so many uh so many things uh in in the technical aspects of happy together that you would not you know you would don't really see done like for instance when shooting uh and this kind of things that stood out to me in the last uh, in the last viewing is when he shoots so many shots against the sun, a lot of filmmakers would be careful to avoid excessive flaring in the lenses. But you like you don't see that in um, in Wong Kar Wai films. He shoots against the sun and he does even you can even see like the the dust in the lenses at some points as he shoots against like like those small imperfections that a lot of in a lot of other films would be, would be polished away. He just leaves them there. He you know he doesn't he doesn't care to properly light when he when he's shooting in unconventional lighting. He doesn't he doesn't spend that much. He does it doesn't look like he spends that much time in properly lighting. Uh, actors, for instance, like there are so many scenes where you don't see their eyes, and you generally even, you know, cinematographers even when they shoot dark scenes, they still like to have the eyes of the actors somewhat lit up so they're visible, so their acting shows up. But that's that's not always done here, and so many things like that that are just, you know, that are nothing majorly ugly. In fact, it's beautiful the way he does it, but you know, it's it's things that are just feel unpolished in general that are kind of work work in the movie's favor. Yeah, you see it in um, Days of Being Wild, where there's some like brilliant like um, tracking shots uh, that run through buildings, or uh, you see the Filipino jungle. Um, the, it's uh, what I get, the impression I get from the filmmaking is that 
they shoot a lot of material and um, then it all gets edited uh, down in post-production. It looks like they shoot fast. They're like, put a camera over their shoulder and then they just go out in the street and say, okay, we got to do this before the cops come and stop us. Like that's the, I don't know if that's the case at all, but that's kind of the feeling that I get. Yeah, they, they, they like sometimes they're shooting 20 hours a day for um, Happy Together or they have to rush shots because Leslie Chung had to go back to Hong Kong or uh, uh, and um, they're willing to experiment. So like some days Wong Kar Wai left the set so he could work on the script because it was, he, all he had was a loose, loose outline and he was making it up as he was going along trying to discover the characters. So uh, Christopher Doyle and William Chang were left with the actors to sort of improvise some scenes and um, they could do different techniques to try and create mood and atmosphere. Yeah, and that, I think that shows because there's, you know, a lot of, you know, shots of Tony Long just eating alone and then, uh, you know, running away or that. Of course, that fits into the par- the narrative, but there's a lot of atmospheric shots that, you know, there's no dialogue. There's not even, you know... If, it looks like when he was shot, there wasn't like a, a concrete story in mind as to what that might have meant. But the original film was three hours long and Wong Kar Wai cut it down to 90 minutes or 93 minutes. And he focused it on um, Tony Leung's character because he felt like he was trying to tell too much. So like with the three hour cut, um, which you can actually see clips of in um, documentary, Buenos Aires Zero Degree. Uh, you can see like there were three female side characters who would interact with Tony Leung and Leslie Chung. And um, it has a a feel closer to Fallen Angels at times. Oh, I see. I, I have not seen that documentary. Yeah, it, I looked to see if it was on YouTube so we could like tweet it out. Um, but it wasn't on YouTube. So obviously people are enforcing copyright. And we, I suppose, is it on the Criterion release? I don't know. I I have an old DVD of this, which does not include it. Yeah, the Criterion release looks massively different. It looks com- like the image is sharper. And um, you can see uh, the, the colors uh, much more clearly and the actors as well. So uh, like, there's a lot of debates online as to like whether people like the original that was released or what Wong Kar Wai has um, uh, given to Criterion now. Uh, with everything cleaned up but, and uh, like, sort of like his vision restored. Yeah, that's, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, we kind of, we've kind of jumped into the cinematographer, so I might as well continue on that topic. But the film does have a, well, first of all, in, in regard to what you said about, it does feel like there is a, a, and this is not a negative towards the film, it's just something that I observed, but it seems like there is a lack of symmetry in the in the way the story progresses. Like you get the feeling that this should be a a story about Tony Long and Leslie Chung's character, but it, it ends up being what you mentioned, Tony Long's story. And I'm guessing that kind of makes sense by the fact that maybe it was intended in the original three-hour cut. It was intended to be, you know, a more equally shared uh, screen time between the two actors. But then when Wong Kar Wai cut it, it ended up being more of a Tony Long story. Yeah, uh, like in interviews, he said like he had um, difficult time with Ashes. Uh, uh, oh, was it Ashes of Time? That was the the epic that he was doing. Yeah, he had a difficult um, experience, sort of managing all these different perspectives in the film. And when he saw the three hour um, the three hour cut of um, Happy Together, he decided to 
trim it all down. So you had a whole um, like plot with Leslie Chung uh, being a, a drag artist um, cut out of the film, and you had all these female characters cut out of the film. And that's the female characters, especially, is what you see in other Wong Kar Wai films where there are different um, couplings of people and uh, men and women together and different variations in the relationships and that's all taken out so he could focus on the relationship between Tony Leung's character and Leslie Chung's character. And that's obviously that's um I think that worked out for the better. Although do you remember what the who the female actors were that were cut out? Oh, it's on Buenos Aires Zero Degrees on uh IMDB, okay. And the cast we've got uh, Shirley Kwan is one of the actresses. Like the other actresses I did not recognize. Um, I thought maybe, uh, yeah, so Shirley Kwan is the biggest name. I get the sense maybe they're locals to Argentina because there's like a whole section about the Chinese diaspora in Argentina itself, like the first generation to go there and um, like the younger generation, like the children who grew up there and um, random travelers. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. But speaking of the cinematography that you mentioned, I, I haven't seen the the Criterion release and I'm, I generally think Criterion has done a pretty good job, but I hope they didn't clean it too much because I think one of the appeals that of this film is, you know, the different film stocks that uh, Wong Kar Wai uses for the different parts. Like he uses a black and white film stock and then two different colors, color film stock, one that is, you know, has like washed out colors and one that has more warmer, you know, reddish colors in it. And I think, you know, that kind of, especially the black and white has such, you know, strong contrast, such crashed shadows and bright uh, highlights that it just gives, gives it a, a very ethereal look to the, to the black and white sequence, especially since the film begins with that. Yeah. And it's like film grain as well. So it's all rough and ready. You know, the whole, uh, I've been you know, there's the, this debate has been going on for a long time and it'll probably go on for a while, the whole film versus digital uh, debate. And I think this is one good uh, argument for film because you can achieve these very unique looks with film that it does that don't necessarily, of course, you can replicate in post-production with digital, but it, it doesn't necessarily look the same. And it's also, why would you make a crisp digital image to look like cheap film stock? Uh, so that, that so that's one argument form film, and it's it's you know what made now that everybody every country is shooting digital. Pretty much, if you watch an American film or you know a Korean film or a Hong Kong film or a Chinese film, they kind of all look the same. But you know when everybody was using film, every country might have been using different film stocks. Some countries used like Hong Kong film, especially from the eighties and nineties. They have a particular look to them because they used a somewhat cheaper. Film stock, they use slightly different chemical processing, uh, different post-processing techniques and all that, and gave each, you know, each studio, each country, each, you know, production group, their different looks. Uh, and I think that's kind of an argument for film. Not I, I, I have made no secret in this podcast about my, you know, slight dislike to Tarantino, and Tarantino has spoken a lot about, you know, why he proposed, he, he prefer, prefers film as opposed to digital and the reasons he gives why he prefers film over digital are the most idiotic reasons uh ever uh, but uh <laughs> but but arguments like this you know these you know legitimate differences in in the visual look and the aesthetic of film i think are are good arguments for it and i think uh, in happy together especially 
work on Wonkar Y. It does, you know, an incredible job at trying to use, you know, the differences in film stock to, you know, make a point about his story. And that might have been Christopher Doyle who made that decision. Maybe I'm giving Wonkar Y too much too much credit here, but but I think it it works so well in this film. Yeah, like you will not see anything quite like this. Like I like especially from Hong Kong cinema itself. Uh, the use of uh like uh like when they're playing football and it's all washed out you can't see too many details uh yeah like that's um when you look at the trailer for the criterion release it's a sharp image you can see all of the details um so i, I would be interested in getting a criterion release just to compare and contrast i wonder if their criteria if the one because this is available on the criterion channel i wonder if the one the criterion channel is that criterion release i can i stopped my subscription at the criterion channel because i could just get the dvds from my library so i didn't want to pay but maybe i'll just get a another trial if i can to just to check it out and see if 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 that's the one that they have on uh, criterion I, I very rarely double dip when it comes to media. It has to be something I really love. And like uh, with one car wise movies, I might, I would be tempted to because the the difference in like uh, images, aspect ratios or color grading, things like that seem to be massive from what I saw of the Happy Together trailer. I wonder why he, because you said the director approved all that or he must have. I wonder why he changed. Did he not like the was it something about the original that he did like it doesn't strike me as as if he had, as if he wouldn't have creative freedom so i'm sure the original was what he wanted i think part of the reason is like they're rushing to meet deadlines and they're working with what they've got so in uh, post production um uh maybe they now they've had more time to tinker with it and put out like the definitive version I hope I hope it didn't take away. I mean, if they sharpened the image a little bit, okay. But I hope they didn't take away. You know, the the main uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The main features, the the thing that made the cinematography of this film and the editing, because we also need to praise the editing of you know the some of the fast cuts, the way that he kind of cuts from you know like the waterfall to his face and all those different things that he they do. Uh, I hope they didn't take they didn't take a lot of those away. Yeah, well, I I I have to say that this is based on just looking at the trailer for the Criterion release. Yeah, yeah, and that's that can be very limited. Yeah, but you mentioned that like in the football scene that you mentioned, where he, you know, he starts at both times. He's because the the film stock that he uses is so contrasty and so washed out that he starts with a camera pointing to the ground, and for a second it, it looks like it's almost night and it's almost uh, lit by street lamps. Just the way the 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 pavement on the ground is and then he he pans up and you can see the bright sky and the sun against the bodies of the people of the 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 people playing football so it's it's very it's very very like i said unconventional but interesting choices in the in the cinematography of the film absolutely and uh it sort of captures like thematically like the journey um tony leung's character goes through as he like wrestles with like this really depressing romance that he's going through and he divests himself of it he leaves it behind so okay so we've we've talked about because you know you can in all Wong Kar Wai films you know the the techniques that he uses stand out but of course there's a very a very deep and a very interesting story that's going on here and one of the things that struck me and I wrote it first down on my bullet points is you know the the 
quote unquote queer queerness or the the gay aspect of this drama do you do you interpret this film as a specifically gay drama or do you read this film as a romantic drama where the main characters just happen to be gay uh i read it as a and romantic- i hope i hope i'm making i hope i'm making that distinction clear between those two different points okay would you like to explain the distinction the way I see it, and it, it it is somewhat intangible. Like I, that's what that's why I I I made sure to ask that question. But the the way I would interpret it as a gay drama is is a drama that is specifically focuses on the queerness, on the 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 gay aspect of their relationship. But whereas the other is, this would have been ninety percent the same had the two main characters not been two gay men, but just been a man and a woman. Hmm. And that, that's what I kind of mean. Yeah, as if you replaced one character of a woman, then yeah, uh, it would be the same story, uh, more or less. Obviously, it's not. I'm. I'm. You will never be a hundred percent the same. There are, you know, I, I mean, there are th- things about their their characters being gay that obviously you can't you can't just ignore. But overall, on average, now one Carl, I know one Carl has said he wants to see it as um, a romantic drama rather than just a gay drama. Um, and I I think this is going to be down to each individual viewer, how they see it. For me, I'm quite happy to see it as a romantic drama with two well-crafted, uh, complex gay men. Um, their homosexuality informs a lot of their decisions. Um, and, uh, and it's like, I suppose you could say it's like the motivation for them to be traveling um, like, and thematically, it's like the like the, the reason why they're journeying as well. Yeah, you get the you get the sense that you know they you know like in the end he has to write a letter to his father and explain things, and that could be you know you know obviously Hong Kong is you know uh, I think the China Hong Kong a lot of Asian countries are are bent more socially conservative. So homosexuality, definitely in the 90s, even today from the people that I've talked is not something that is openly accepted, even though Taiwan just legalized gay marriage, I think. Yeah, like uh, traditional values emphasize um, family harmony. And I suppose um, being gay would be a a deviation from that. And um, there would be some prejudice at the time, just like there was in the West. Yeah, and Argentina is definitely—I mean, not not a—is definitely. I think when the nineties was known to be the Latin Americas were known to be more open to that kind of uh, culture. Yeah, like um, Buenos Aires is Paris of the South, so it's a lot more sophisticated, and you can see the gay cruising scene there. Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit more out in the open. Leslie Chung himself, who was bisexual, um, sort of sh- uh, struggled with um, the public's. Um, or the media's attention to his sexuality. So, like, while not outright hostility, it um, these men would have faced. Um, they're trying to escape and establish. You can you can sort of assume they're trying to escape and establish their own lives elsewhere, and their sexuality informs that. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's true. Uh, on the other side, you could also interpret that you know him writing a letter to his father about other things, like him stealing. Uh, from the work that his father got, from the job that his father got him before he left, so or or the fact that he hasn't called him, 
it's like a complete rejection of Confucian values where you have to like honor the family. I, I'm stereotyping now. I, I'm not an expert, but you know, you have to like, it's a very patriarchal society. You have to listen to the father. You have to honor the family. And um, Tony Leung's character, Leslie Chung's character, they've, they've gone completely opposite direction. They've rebelled and they've gone on a journey to the other side of the world to try and find themselves. Yeah. And um, and they say at some point they say that they were left Hong Kong because they had problems not not with they fought all the time together and they left to start over they think so there, there's an implication that they also had a relationship in Hong Kong so like I said there is there is evidence to suggest that they left Hong Kong because there were the the culture there was uncomfortable with them being gay but it's also there's also you could also read the film without that. You know, like you can interpret it as being an entirely like Wong Kar Wai has claimed it is like a very much more internal struggle that that they had to deal with. Yeah, I like I could picture Leslie Chung's character as being the more outgoing, um, more out of the closet character who um, brought along Tony Leung's character, who's probably like a bit more closeted. And there's a scene in the restaurant where um, a third man um played by Chang Chen, he answers um, like Tony Lung's constantly on the phone and Chang Chen picks up the phone to out curiosity as to who Tony Leung's character is always talking to and he discovers it's a man and you get a sense like Tony Leung becomes defensive as if like you know, his uh, closeted identity might be might have been discovered. Yeah, and he doesn't, he never, he never confesses like when that guy, that character asks him, talks about, you know, he's he, the kind of voices that he likes in women and in women and uh, he asks Tony Long, "What kind of uh, voices do you prefer in women?" And he says, "I I, I don't care really." Yeah, and Tony Tony Leung is constantly like he, after that moment where um, Chang Chen's character picks up the phone. Tony Leung's like, like got a hunted look on his face as if I've been rumbled. And uh, like this, apart from the sex scene at the start, and maybe a few. Uh, like the tango, uh, maybe a couple of wrestling matches in the apartment. They very rarely show their um, affection for each other outside of the apartment. But the two characters fall into the archetypes that Wong Kar Wai has in all of his films, such as yeah, yeah, like Tony Leung is the person mourning the relationship that they, uh, he loses, and Leslie Chung's character is the wanderer who's. Like constantly damaging other people because he lives a carefree life. Yeah, and and Tony Long is also um, uh, going back to you know the the whole thing about traditional values. Is someone who it looks like you know even though the traditional values might not line up with you know his own personal identity, it looks like his he care he still cares about them. He cares about you know the identity that he came from. Like he he wants to return to Hong Kong. He's working to return to Hong Kong. Whereas Leslie Chong, there's no indication that he even cares about. Return to Hong Kong. There's no indication that he ever cares about talking. Uh, like we never hear him say, "Oh, I, I, uh, about his father, his mother, or whatever kind of life that he had there." Uh, and you know, there's this sense of um, he is he is a man with no identity, and he's you know he's seeking. I don't want to say a hedonistic lifestyle, but definitely a kind of life where he doesn't care about his cultural roots whereas Tony Long is the opposite of that and it's it it is fascinating to me that these two kind of people are kind of are even drawn to each other in the first place well it's i guess it's like a case of opposites react uh opposites attract i should say yeah i mean it is and it's it's i, c I could imagine that 
Leslie Chung is the more outgoing personality who like allows Tony Leung's character to um touch that inner part of himself that he struggled with and like Rick get him out of the closet. Yeah, but but also Tony Leung is a person who I think much in the in the in the in line with the traditional with the traditional Confucian values, he likes to have control over the people of his life. Oh like, yeah. This is, and it's, it's, I th- I feel like, I mean, the film, I don't think the film brushes over this, but it's definitely very subtle in about how it shows it. Like he takes, he takes the passport out of his, uh, out of Leslie Chong's character. And, you know, the only reason the happiest he is with Leslie Chong is when Leslie Chong is, uh, handicapped and can't really do anything. So he has... You know, he is, he's, in order to keep that control, he's willing to go and cook for Leslie Chong at, you know, and when he's in high fever or to go out in the cold and get cigarettes for him. Like he's, he complains about that, but he's secretly happy about that because he has, you know, he has absolute control over Leslie uh, Chong's characters. Whereas I don't know, we get an exact idea, but what it is that uh, attracts Leslie Chong to Tony Long's character. I'm not sure if you, if you have any theories about that. No, it's, uh, other than Les, uh, other than Tony Young's handsome, <laughs> but I, it seems like um, I I agree with that reading. It's Tony Young, like in one humorous scene, he buys like two hundred cartons of cigarettes, so Leslie Chung's character doesn't have to leave the apartment. But yeah, like that level of control just grows and grows until he takes the passport and keeps it, and it's actually quite menacing and leads to a, a somewhat tragic ending for Leslie Chung's character. I, I think Leslie Chung also shows uh, a controlling side also a provoke a a provoking aspect to his character so someone like tony lung's character would be a challenge um i was introduced to the concept of like um a twin flame relationship by a younger colleague at work uh, last year and it's kind of like people who feel like they're soulmates who see some who see something deep in each other but part of that connection is that they aggravate each other as well. Um, like in seeing each other, they reflect upon the weaknesses in their own lives. Well, when it comes to Leslie Chong, I, I also got the impression that, you know, he, so it's, and this is, I don't know if this was intended at all, but it sounds like to me, like, you know, you're a gay man in Hong, uh, in, in Hong Kong, how many, and I don't know, I could be completely wrong about whether this is a thing in Hong Kong or not, but you know, how many other openly gay men are you going to meet? So when you meet someone that you kind of like, you feel like there, you create this sense of obligation inside you, uh, that, you know, that, that might be it for me. And maybe that it is what attracts, and then when if they finally get to Argentina or to Buenos Aires, where it's the thing uh, where that's not the case for Leslie Chong, he wants to, you know, he now he sure, he suddenly has so many more options. He he can go out and party and and you know meet so many other gay men, and uh, and but but Tony Long is always there for him. It's like the stability. He does. He wants to have a wild life, but he. When he's, you know, when he hurts himself or when he, something happens, when he's, you know, beaten by a gangster or when he's in trouble with the law and everything, he knows that Tony Long will always be there for him. And I think that's kind of, that's what Chung, Leslie Chung finds in Tony Long. He's not, you know, he's not ready to settle, but Tony Long is, when, when he wants, uh, you know, to have fun, he knows that Tony Long is going to be there waiting for him. Yeah, stability. Sort of like 
uh, to put it bluntly, like the wife at home. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's he sees Tony Long as you know as the easy second, the easy backup choice. Uh, and I, I and I think I, I it's more nuanced than that, but I think that's a at least a way to start to understand Leslie Chong's character in this. And I think maybe that's why Hong why ultimately decided to reduce his role because that's that's not as interesting as Tony Long's reasons for you know finding himself back to Leslie Chong and, you know, his struggles in Buenos Aires. Hmm. I agree. And making the film center to- uh, totally on Tony Lung's character um, allows Wong Kar Wai to fully explore the idea of leaving behind a relationship like that, that now that he's managed to like find his true identity as a gay person, he's left in this um, country that he has no connection to. And um, he finds that he he has to turn to the Chinese diaspora to find himself again. And that informs the story in the second half of the film. Do you think think Tony Long returns to Hong Kong or do you think he just stays in Taiwan after the ending of the film? Oh, doesn't he say at the end uh, in uh, voiceover that he returns to Hong Kong after a short stay in Taipei? I I think that he said he plans to do that, but we he doesn't say. I from what I re- I remember the voiceover, he says that's what I'm gonna do, but I don't think he's still in a bus in Taipei, just kind of smiling, uh, yeah. And the as the song, happy together, a uh, plays. At the end, so but I and I kind of I don't know maybe I'm just seeing things that aren't there, but I kind of I kind of got a, like a tongue in cheek vibe out of that that maybe he'll return to Hong Kong, but maybe he won't. I don't know. Yeah, I uh, I got what I took from it's like general thrust is that he's returning to Hong Kong. It's sort of like um, as you mentioned earlier, he's he's te- he still has some residual respect for Hong Kong society. He still has affection for the culture. And that's what tethers him to the world. Uh, and that's the reason why he travels back, whereas Leslie Chung is left in um, Buenos Aires and um, like it's stuck in a miserable purgatory while Tony Lung, like at the end, you, you see him finally smiling as he sort of returns closer to something he could consider home. To be fair, I mean, you know, wouldn't it be possible for him, for Leslie Chung to just go to the embassy and say, I lost my passport, but I yeah, still want to go home? Yeah, emergency passport. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think it's quite as dire as uh, as maybe the film makes it out to be, but but it, obviously that that's that's irrelevant, I guess. It's not, uh, yeah, the, I don't think, the, go ahead. The, no, the, like, the atmosphere is so strong that like you think it's like a world-ending tragedy, but the end of this romance, <laughs> it's like... Leslie Chung is left drifting uh, like an untethered balloon, whereas Chang Chen's character and Les and Tony Lung's character they they because they have a sense of home and a sense of belonging they they can they and also like inner strength as well to carry on um, that they that they can get over a, a terrible relationship. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and I don't think. It- uh, Leslie Chung really wants to go back. In the end, we get we get him asking for his passport, and Tony Long says, "I'm I'm I'll give you your passport. I just don't want to see you." And obviously, we get the sense that Leslie Chung is only using that as an excuse to see Tony Long to get back, and and is not. And obviously, that's in the end, he just kind of 
rents the same apartment, uh, you know, decorated exactly the same way. And I think the last we see of him is crying on the bed or something like that. Well, he fixes the lamp with Iguazo Falls, which he yeah. wanted to visit with Tony Lung. And it's like Tony Lung makes that journey that he can't. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not that you know Blesley Chong has not grown over this experience. He's just he's still, you know, the same person and he's, you know, he's just he has these ups and he has his down and this is just a down moment that he realizes that he can't he can he doesn't have the stability of Tony Long to return to whenever he wants to anymore. I think yeah, the the Wanderer character archetype generally isn't capable of that sort of growth in Wong Kar Wai movies. Um Whereas the mourner, like Tony Lung, is able to get past the mourning stage and um, become happy with himself. Yeah, and they both, they both, you know, I mean, this is a very codependent relationship, very toxic, to use a, mo- a more modern term. Like, like you said, Leslie Chung knows he can go back to Tony yeah. Lung. Like he'll always be waiting. So that's, that, in a way, it's really abusive. Like there's physical abuse. Like they, they yeah. fight with each other, but like the love, emotional abuse is quite traumatic. It is, yeah, it is, yeah, exactly. And and I think you know it's just Don Lung grew, and he will not, you know, he learned something from the experience. But you know, there's, I think there is a sense in the end that you know he's not, he he's moved on. But you know that's why he avoids, he wants to avoid seeing Leslie Chung again because he he is afraid that he'll fall back into the same habits. You know, there's there's a sense of you know the the same thing could could be could repeat, uh, but he just he's just avoiding it. It's like it's like when you're trying to quit smoke and you avoid anybody who's who around you who might smoke because you know you're not strong enough to like say no to a cigarette if they end up offering it to you. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you make of Tony Long's relationship with uh, Chang? Uh, because. We get the impression that there's some there's something there, but I don't think the film implies in any way that Chang is also gay. I think it's more friendship. It's friendship, but what do you think Tony Long gets out of that friendship? How do you think it kind of in 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 contrast to his relationship with uh, with um, uh, Leslie Chung's character? Well, le- his relationship with Leslie Chung's character is really damaging, and it's all about emotional abuse and control, and. Um, with um Chang Chen's character, it, it's like a reminder of home and and uh Chinese diaspora and um Tony Lung's place in it, and like that meeting sparks the desire in Tony Lung's character to reconnect with his father. And um, I felt like that friendship gave him the bravery to escape the toxic relationship, and reminded him that there's a world outside of like this claustrophobic relationship he's been in with Leslie Chung's character. So do you think when he records that message on tape for Chang's character, which ends up being just him sobbing, mm. what do you think the sob is for? Do you think, I, I, I think it, on the surface, it looks like it's, you know, because Chang is moving away and he's never going to see him again or likely, or do you think it's about, you know, him realizing that he's made the decision uh, to he's leave. got to go. He's got to go and he's never going to see Leslie Chong again. I think that's exactly it. Okay. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's most likely it, but I think, you know, he, he may have been one, another possible interpretation that I kind of got out of it is, you know, when you use one addiction to, to recover from another one, he may have been using 
he may have been substituting his his obsession with Leslie Chong with you know spending more time with Chang, and maybe that's when Chang finally leaves, he realized that he has to get over it on his own. He can't just use Chang as a crutch to to you know escape from Leslie Chong. There's actually a cutscene where Chang puts on um, Leslie Chung's jacket, and Tony Leung looks at him and mistakes him for Leslie Chung. Okay, so you can see he's that... pro- projecting something. Exactly. Onto yeah, Chang. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I, that's. I don't remember that. It's not in the film. It, it was cut. Oh, okay. I see. I see. That's. I thought. Okay. But I, I feel like Chang offers Tony Leung's character like the strength to keep going like when you are far from home and you meet an individual who like totally like you could be when you're far from home you're in an alien environment it can be exhausting it can be dispiriting especially when you know nobody around and um when you meet someone who uh reminds you of similar cultural values or who just gives you pure friendship it can re-energize you and um, I feel like this was like a positive relationship that allowed Tony Lung's character to sort of break free of a very toxic relationship. Yeah, it's. I think Chang's character can be um, is kind of a a transitional. Like even though he develops such a close relationship with him, he is, I think, by the very nature, a transitional milestone in in his uh, in in Tony Tony Lung's journey. And I think it's kind of makes sense why he doesn't also probably doesn't see him again even though he goes to his parents' restaurant in in Taiwan. You said like he's substituting one addiction for another earlier and at the very end of the scene Tony Lung takes a photograph of Chang from the family restaurants. And oh yeah yeah that's that's true yeah. Yeah there's, there's maybe there's the slight hope that he'll see him again. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what prompted me to ask: Is he really gonna return to Hong Kong, or is he, you know, is that smile in the end kind of like, okay, I'm I'm over Leslie Chung, but now I'm in love with uh with Chang, and uh, I'm gonna wait for him here till he returns because we even get that scene, that voiceover scene from Chang's perspective when he's at that lighthouse where he says, "I've seen the world, I think I'm ready to return home." So there's obviously Tony Long doesn't know that, but like the film gives a gives the you know gives that possibility that the two might reconnect in Taiwan. It, yeah, it's an open ending, so the possibility exists. So what do you make of the, the the song by the Turtles Happy Together which is not that that rendition is not by the Turtles is uh, some cover in Hong Kong because probably uh, with Hong Kong film budgets they probably could not afford the turtle the actual turtle song. Was it by Danny Chung? I don't know. I that I I think that's right. That I think that's that tweet was. So it was a cover of, of the turtle song. So what do you make of that? Of the, happy together is being used as a, as the title, which is definitely has very strong ironic connotations. But do you make it of, of like that playing right at the end as as Tony Long is seemingly happy? Uh, yeah, well, full disclosure, I I bought the soundtrack specifically to get that song, and that's how I learned the lyrics of Happy Together. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it it was a song that I knew before I was familiar with this movie. It was a song that I liked by the Turtles, and the, their rendition is a lot different than what Danny Chung. I think it, if that's the one who does it in this film, it, he does it a much more you know rock um, faster pace than what is the original song by the Turtles. Yeah, like you said, it's ironic because you've watched this really painful breakup between two people, which has gone on for about like ninety minutes, and this song is captures the pure joy of being in love 
of upbeat melody and um, sweet lyrics, and it's done in a, a rock style. It could also have a, another meaning that um, Tony Lung's character is happy with himself again. He's happy with his place in the world. Now he's returned home um, and escaped the relationship. That's, I mean, that that's true. But I'm also kind of reminded me of um, maybe a more bleak interpretation that, you know, Tony Long cannot have true happiness without without the, the the painful association with Leslie Chung. Like, I'm reminded of the film uh, Train Spotting, where mm-hmm. where they in the beginning he opens with why do you think we do it when he talks he's talking about herring because it feels really good. We're not that stupid. And and I'm wondering if, you know, obviously it's a very toxic and it's very damaging for him. But in the moment, he might be the happiest he's ever been. And I think he even explicitly says so that he, he says, obviously he says that time when he's, you know, when uh, Leslie Chang is injured, he says that was our happiest moment together. And I'm wondering if that isn't also the happiest time of his life, even if it is, if it is, you know, there's a lot of negative side effects associated with it. And, you know, like maybe, maybe, uh, this, you know, Wong Kar Wai is making this case for pathos at a great personal expense or, you know, this kind of like the same thing was as a troubled artist kind of, kind of, uh, uh, reasoning where, you know, you, you, uh, there's this stereotypically portrayal of artists being very troubled people, but they can also, uh, that also enables them to to achieve great things in their in their creations, and I'm wondering if it's the same thing with the romance that you know there's a very destructive, almost fatal side effects to them being together, but that's also uh, that they do it because that's also there's also a lot of happiness associated with it. I like they gave each other a place in the world, and I've I like if, to link it back to um, like the visual aesthetic, like color actually comes in when Leslie uh, Chung's hands have been broken and he needs to returns yeah he he returns yeah and um if we take this um film as tony lung looking back over a destructive relationship i think the the, like the song and the color coming in at that point sort of indicate that yeah he does have some addiction to being in that relationship where he has control yeah that i mean that's uh of course, yeah, I do think that the, there's the the use of color by Wong Kar Wai is, is intentional uh, to to vary the specific emotions of the characters. But part of me also wondered if he did just use color in black white just to make things look better at times. I don't know if you've seen the if you've seen the film If by Lindsay Anderson. Uh, I've only watched. No, I haven't seen it. To be, uh, like a couple of minutes of it. It's Malcolm McDowell, right? Yeah, yeah. It's in, yeah. in 1968, won the Palme d'Or in that year. Very, very good film. I, I highly recommend it. Boarding school, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, very, very famous for its ending. But that film is known for its use of black and white and color interchangeably. Yeah. And uh, there are many reasons why, uh, why people have speculated to why he uses some in some scenes black and white and some scenes colored. Some people have like linked it to aesthetics. Some people said it was a budget reason. And finally, I listened to I, I read an interview by he was either an assistant DP or or assistant camera operator or something like that. Uh, he talked about it and he said the only reason he used some scenes in black and white and some scenes in color 
He said it's because some scenes look better in black and white and some scenes look better in color. He said some scenes you have to, when you light a scene, you have to take special precautions when you light something in color. And we just, you know, we didn't, we didn't want to bother with it. So we just shot it in black and white because it just, it was easier and it looked better. And, yeah. and every time I see a movie, then there aren't that many, but happy together is a notable example when there's parts in black and white and parts in color. I, I'm often, I often wonder, is it, is there a stylistic choice that has some meaning or is it just because, you know, it just looked better in black and white. So he just decided to do it in black and white. Yeah. They, um, well, Wong Kar Wai and his crew shoot so much film and then he puts it, all together in post-production so like that's definitely a possibility yeah i wonder if he shot everything in 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 both and then he just decided afterwards to to do it i don't think that's the case but uh yeah that would be it would be fascinating but no i do think i agree with you that i think there is an a a poignant choice as to when he's like he switches to color like you said then after they break up where he there's well not not immediately after but when he takes that long road to back to the iguana falls towards the end of the movie then it's black and white again yeah and we see these images of just roads and roads that keep going and that's you know him driving away from his addiction in a sense and it's it's a painful memory so it's in black and white that's a very s- simple superficial interpretation but it, it does make sense in a way yeah there's oh, there's another interpretation to the turtle song which is um the reunification of um hong kong and china and that plays into Tony Leung's character arc as well, as he goes back home, back to um, the Chinese diaspora. Um, you can see him as um, uh, sort of. Uh, you can see his journey as a metaphor for Hong Kong's journey. That for a hundred years, they were ruled by the British. They they were outside of China's reach. And then they eventually go back. Is the rule with the British the toxic uh, Hong Kong's toxic relationship? I agree that that may have been in uh, Wong Kar-wai's mind, but I, I'm not. I guess I'm not sure I agree with him because there were, you know, at the time there were a lot of concerns hmm. about returning to China. So is it is it a resignation towards towards toward, from Wong Kar-wai saying, hey, maybe we don't like it, but we have to we have to return home. There's a sense of inevitability. Yeah, yeah. I it, that could be a, a possible reading as well. It certainly backfired. Uh, if we if we uh, talk in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, yeah. But but anyway, then let's 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 uh, let's stay in nineteen ninety seven in the happy year of nineteen ninety seven <laughs> before the handover. Yeah. So yeah, I do think because there's those shots of the passport. The passport obviously is a big. In a modern, you know, bureaucratic society, passports are so deeply associated with one's identity and one's personal identity and one's national identity. Yeah. Uh, and we have, you know, both of them have passports in the beginning and both of them choose, you know, we get the sense that they have planned this permanent move to this complete abandonment to Hong Kong. And you can even say, like, in a very, very out there interpretation, you can say, hey, it's 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 the end of 1996. We only have a few months before we're independent. Let's just leave this. We don't want to stay in China. Let's just leave and go to Argentina. Maybe maybe that was the reason that they they left Hong Kong in the first place. Yeah, the s- sudden desire for freedom. Yeah, because there was a lot of anxiety about Hong Kong returning to China at the time. I remember there was 
well, I don't remember because I was too young, but I remember reading about the time and there was, you know, a lot of movies addressing a lot of political figures saying that they'll keep an eye on China. They make sure they respect Hong Kong's rule of government and all that. And of course, <laughs> to make the same snide comment again, we know how all that turned out, but at least at the time it was a big, a big deal. So is there anything else that you feel we need to discuss about the movie that we haven't talked about? Uh, what did you think of the setting of Argentina? Well, I mean, I mean, we did touch about this, and again, I, I'm not. I think, you know, it, it all falls back down to, you know, why did they leave Hong Kong, and you know, was it was it why we just mentioned political reasons? Was it they just wanted to change of scenery, or was it to do something with their homosexuality? So I think I think Argentina was uh, a placeholder, like a, a a means to an end for that end. It's also, I think, there's a, I think things that I'm not sure it has any specific meaning. Although it might have, but that you know something that would definitely attract Wong Kar Wai this geo- geographic curiosity is the fact that Buenos Aires is almost on the exact opposite of the globe to Hong Kong, so it is the the furthest possible point. I'm, I actually haven't checked this on a globe, so so hopefully I'll just take his word for it. Yeah, I got the sense that it was like just the opposite side of the planet. It's fairly, I mean, it's fairly accurate, but it's also a, di- a, a, a line on the film. And, you know, I think that it's just, you know, them trying to escape their origins as into, you know, the exact opposite of the globe. Although I personally wouldn't go to Argentina, but I, I, I think that's besides the point. It, yeah, it's like completely alien to them. It's um, a place that they could escape all the news about... Um, Hong Kong and the handover because like the newspapers are in a completely different language and maybe people wouldn't be talking about it to them so much but like the way they filmed Argentina itself is like really like I you don't see many tourist attractions there it's mostly no and 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 honestly like they could have gotten away to just filming it somewhere else yeah, like it, you nothing, see such a li- except the falls. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing distinctive there, and I feel like it highlights a sense of like desolation and um, isolation. Exactly. I was going to say the same because what what does Tony Long do? He stays in a in a crappy apartment, mostly without interacting with any locals. Even even when he goes to buy cigarettes, like the it, like the clerk, the convenience store clerk is trying to make small talk with him and. Tony Long doesn't even say anything. There's a couple of times like that where he just buys the cigarettes, he just nods and like leaves. Yeah, or the guy like talking about pizza toppings and Tony Long just repeats one line, takes the pizza and goes. Yeah, and uh and you know, what job does he get is greeting Chinese tourists that are in in Buenos Aires. We don't see him interacting with local tourists or tourists from other parts of the world. It just, you know, he's he's you know, it feels like there is no reason for him to be in Argentina other than the geographical distance. And that, yeah, it's like, um, it's a, like he's, it defamiliarizes the character. The place is defamiliarized. Um, and you feel like he's isolated there, which makes like his, uh, gradual return to, um, Taiwan and then Hong Kong, um, much more logical. Yeah, and the only friend he makes is from is from Taiwan, even though even though he, he happens to speak Cantonese because you know they got to talk with each other. I, I, I'm not. I, I know Taiwan. The people from Taiwan speak Mandarin, but maybe maybe they all know Cantonese somehow. I don't know. Mm. 
Uh, yeah. But yeah, so the only friend he makes is uh, is another ch- of Chinese origin. But it's like a, it's like a great place where you you don't have anything to dive. It's a great place for a study of a doomed romance because you don't have anything surrounding them that can sort of um, distract from their turmoil. They're like they'll they're constantly together. And Leslie Chung's the only one that actually goes out to, to interact with the locals. And that leaves Tony Leung th- to sit there and stew. And we don't see them, but, but you know, like, Le- Tony Leung is the kind of person who goes on a vacation to some beautiful place and spends the entire time inside playing video games. Yeah. Whereas was Tony- <laughs> Leslie Chung is, is actually, we don't see his perspective. So that's, I guess it, add, it adds the sense of isolation from, to, in the, well, that's what the audience perceive. But, you know, if we, in the hypothetical scenario where we followed Leslie Chung, we would see, you know, maybe, you know, all the, the, the rich nightlife of Buenos Aires, the, you know, the maybe more touristic sites, maybe a better, better neighborhoods of neighbors, Buenos Aires. I don't, I don't know. I'm just speculating. He's got the more gregarious personality, whereas Tony Leung's more brooding. Yeah. And, and, you know, even, even Tony Leung wanting to see the falls, which is the only tourist, the Iguana Falls, which is the only tourist attraction we ended up seeing on film, is because Leslie Chong gotting the lamp. So he he we there's we there's no reason to believe he would take that journey if he if it wasn't because of the lamb that Leslie Chong got him. Yeah, it like these guys are stuck in a liminal space where they can't where they're untethered from their home culture from their home, and they're stuck together. It's a really claustrophobic atmosphere when they're together. It's full of conflict, and they're constantly coming and going as well. Like they're either driving away from each other or walking away from each other, and it's like this like space devoid of everything they know is like where they get to the heart of the conflict uh, in their relationship yeah the only and every time when we see having fun together it's it's in in this claustrophobic space and it is apartments when they're dancing it looks like they're doing it in a bathroom or something in the kitchen downstairs of his apartment building the only time that tony long goes to quote-unquote have fun is when he goes out a couple of times for drinks to uh with uh chang yeah uh and it doesn't look like he's having a lot of fun there although he probably is but the only time that he legitimately goes out to kind of a you know do a, a typical tourist touristy activity is in taiwan when he goes to that big market at night and he has a meal there yeah and that's like the first time you actually see him smile in the film pretty much yeah pretty much and uh, like this was originally going to be, uh, I think it was going to be a three week shoot, but it turned into a few months. And like everybody's far from home, and the cast and crew were emotionally affected by being so far from home. And you can see it come out in a performance of Tony Young, I think. Yeah, well, I I, I suspect Tony um, um, Wonkar Wise crew that he brought is probably he probably shoots with a small crew. I suspect. Uh, so I'm guessing that made it a little easier, but yeah, I, I doubt he used many local, uh, people for the production. They, they tried using a local production company, um, but, uh, the local production company start, were overcharging them for use of locations. So they, um, got rid of them. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah, this is kind of like this film, like Argentina is a place of exile for these two characters. And Tony Lung's character comes back from exile at the very end. Yeah, I, I mean that, that definitely makes sense. I don't know if you, 
know, I don't know if this would matter at all in the interpretation of the film, but is Argentina a big, a big destination for Chinese diaspora? I I have no idea. I think you have to assume so because I don't know if it's how big it is, but in the deleted scenes, there's um, uh, sequences involving the Chinese diaspora there. So I I think there's got to be something there. I just don't know how big it is. Okay, okay. I mean, it it is possible. Yeah, I just I it just it's not known. I guess I, I mean, guess I'm not an expert, so I I don't I, I couldn't say definitively. I just have not ever heard it as being a big destination for for Chinese immigrants. But I mean, it's a big country, so it makes. I know it's a it was a big destination for Nazi immigrants. But that's a <laughs> that's a a different a different point. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, also Brazil. Yeah, well, well, I guess Latin America in general. Uh, and America, Operation Paperclip. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, we've gone we've gone way off track. Okay, yeah, but yeah, I think I think I think Argentina is a big. And you mentioned I had not heard this, but you mentioned in your in your uh, overview that um, in your uh, plot summary that there was a, a Wong Kar Wai has a passion for Latin American authors literature. And I, I mean, I, I did not know that. I know that he has a passion for Latin American music, which is he includes a lot of tango style uh, s- songs in the soundtracks of many, uh, many of his films, yeah, including Twenty Four, yeah, Twenty Forty Six, yeah. and all that. Uh, but yeah, I, I do get you know reading a lot of, especially the Latin American, the South American writers of the uh, of the sixties, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and uh, Ernesto Sabato, and all those. There is that sense, especially you know the the birth. Uh, Borges, the birthplace of uh, of uh, magical realism, and you do get that. Obviously, the, the movie has nothing to do with magical realism, but you do get that sort of sense of you know mood and style that you often see in that kind of literature in this film. It's not, I wouldn't say it's as prevalent that it stands out, but if you if you pay attention, I think it is there. Mm. Uh, I'd also like to add that um, at the beginning of. Um... Uh, at the beginning of uh, the film, uh, the documentary, um, A Buenos Aires Degrees, um, Von Calway states that one of the reasons he wanted to go to Argentina is because he likes football. And you get a shot of Diego Maradona uh, walking through an airport and Tony Lung watching him. Oh, in the documentary? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I might, I might, I have to, I might have to seek out the documentary to just to watch it. Uh, hopefully, it's available somewhere where I can get it without buying it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, there is a, there is a. Um, I wonder why he didn't go to Europe because that's. Well, I guess it would be more expensive there. Yeah, it would be a lot more expensive shooting in Europe than it is in Argentina. I, yeah, uh, I think so. Also, like perhaps like Argentina was a great place to go because he wanted to escape the whole nineteen ninety seven thing, like. Yeah, I if think you the go next... to Britain, everybody's going to talk about it. Yeah, oh, I guess yeah. And there's bigger uh, Chinese communities there. I um, well, the next film that he made was, I think, in the mood for love. So he kind of he didn't do anything remotely political about the handover soon, and that was kind of you know the '90s. I I mean, we talked about it again when we talked about Jackie Chan, but the '90s was kind of you know the end, the death of the Hong Kong, the golden age, and maybe this film is kind of like an unintentional ode to the death of the Hong Kong golden age of cinema in yeah. addition to being everything else that it means. 
yeah, it's it's an end of a relationship. But it's also an end of a period, a period of their lives. It's also an end of like a period in Hong Kong cinema. Like I, I, I feel like with Wong Kar Wai's later films, they became grander and grander, but like slightly more impersonal, a lot more um, abstract and ideals. I don't think he did stuff that he talked about. You know, uh, like in the Mood for Love is a very, very personal story. In the sense of very, very focused in and on the character's life, it doesn't have the same sprawling. And so, so with twenty forty six, well, that was so sprawling; it was hard to get a grip of. Yeah, uh, and then the Grandmaster, which was I, I don't even know what to make of that. I mean, it's a lot of people. You got very good reviews, and I, I enjoyed the film, but I, I don't know. I felt it felt like a, almost a betrayal a little bit. It, it left me cold. Yeah, I, a little bit, a little I, bit. I know I watched 2046 and the Grandmaster in the cinema and um, like following in the mood for love, they, they, they felt like disappointments. Yeah. Like I said, 2046 is a very special place in my heart because it was the first and I still watch it with, with great enjoyment, but it is, you know, a, that is the part of Wong Kar Wai's career where he just, he just, it wasn't the same anymore. Yeah. There's definitely a punk feeling an energy, energy to his first six films. That seems to have faded in his later works. Did he do anything else after the Grandmaster? Oh, he did My Blueberry Nights, but that was before the well, Grandmaster, he did, wasn't before, it? Before that was before. Yeah, that was his attempt at at uh, Hollywood, which didn't yeah. go so well. I think he was trying to develop a TV series. Yeah, according to according to Wikipedia, he was trying to do another Western uh, sort of about uh, television drama about uh, gang wars or something like that. But I guess he he has been busy with restoring his filmography to modern standards. So I guess that's where the whole. Um, so he's been he's been actively involved in that. Yeah, he's probably also at a point in his career where he could just take time doing other things as well. I would argue he was always there <laughs> after his first few films. I don't think he ever rushed anything. Yeah, like considering you know, like in the mood for all came three years after this, and then. 2046 came four years, and then Blueberry Nights came another four years later. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think I think he's been in that position for a long time. I think he he might be either running out of ideas or maybe he's just trying to you know I mean it's per- perfectly a normal thing to do for a filmmaker to try to take time to make sure that they're not because it's I can I mean it's the the whole George Lucas effect where you get to a point where nobody says no to you anymore. Yeah. Uh, or no nobody dares criticize you, and that I think if you're depending on the vanity of your personality you can just take that and go and and you know release uh Batman versus you know release the Snyder cut. cut of the Snyder cut and think that you've you've uh you've you've uh, unleashed a masterpiece into your world a self-proclaimed masterpiece into the world or you if you're a more self-reflective personality you can just actually become somewhat concerned about that and maybe tr- take a break to try to rediscover your um, I guess what made you good in the first place? Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I actually didn't mention, but I did also see the Snyder Cut. <laughs> oh, how was it? In the big, uh, I didn't like it. I, yeah, I didn't I, like the original. <laughs> I remembered so little of the original that I had trouble distinguishing exactly what it was. Yeah, uh, about the Snyder Cut that made it different, other than it was longer. I felt very bored. Yeah, uh, and I honestly, it's been it's been about two weeks since I saw it, and I remember so little of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, yeah, 
I, I watched the first first version, the Joss Whedon version. I wasn't impressed, so I'm not going to go back. I I mean, people have said that the Snyder Cut is better than the Joss Whedon version. And if I remember the Joss Whedon version, maybe I would agree. But I, I remember so little of it that I don't think it, if it is better, I don't think it is that much better. That's, yeah. that's all I'm going to say about it. I, I find uh, that film very bland and Happy Together is the complete opposite. Yeah, uh, yeah. A, a much more interesting film. Okay, so we did talk about Happy Together. Is there anything else that you would like to, d- that you think we've left uh, to discuss about the film? Uh, where would you place it in Wong Kar Wai's filmography? I think you said it was his best. I, I mean, well, I don't, I don't know about that, but it is my favorite of, of Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. I put this, and then I, I would put uh, Chunking Express a second, and then I, I'll put Fallen, uh, Fallen Angels third, and I, I wouldn't rate the rest. I, I have, like I said, I, 2046 has very special place in my heart, but I don't, you know, if I, if I try to rate it objectively, I wouldn't rate it as high, but it, it wouldn't be very low either. I, I, I think, I think uh, uh, 2046, I, I would, I like it more than I'd like to, uh, Days of Being Wild. Uh, but it, it's definitely not in my top three. So I, I, I put, you know, uh, Happy Together, uh, Chunking Express, and Fallen Angels. I think maybe some, on depending on the day, I might put Fallen Angels before, Happy, I mean, Chunking Express, but those are my top three. Okay. So, well, my top three would be Chunking Express. Uh, in the Mood for Love, Happy Together, which is the order I saw them. Honestly... I I mean I don't dislike in the mood for love I I I have I like it a lot but I it's considered it's considered a lot of for a lot of people it's considered a Wong Kar Wai's masterpiece and I don't feel that way I I think it's a great film but I I don't know I it's I like his '90s stuff I like all his '90s stuff better than I like in the mood for love Yeah um, I think part of it for me is like nostalgia because that was the order I saw them in. But I see. I mean, it makes it makes sense. Yeah, it's just like twenty forty six is for me. So we we should mention that this was very well received at the time that it was released. It won Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, that uh, was the same year that um, Shohei Imamura's The Eel took the palm yeah. door. Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize when we scheduled it, but yeah, exactly. And Taste of Cherry, of course. I should mention that one. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, and he also he did fairly well in the Hong Kong Film Awards. It won Best Actor for Tony Long. It was also nominated for Best Actor for Leslie Chang, although it didn't win. It was nominated for a lot of awards like Best Film, Best Director, Best Supporting Art, Actor for Chang, uh, and, and Best Editing, I think, Best Cinematographer, but it didn't win any of those. Uh, the, that year, the film that won the Hong Kong Film Awards, and just to, to make it clear, the Hong Kong Film Awards are kind of the Oscars equivalent for Hong Kong. Uh, the film that won Best Film that year was Made in Hong Kong by... Oh, Fruit Chan. Yes. You've seen... I haven't seen that film. And I think we've talked about possibly discussing it in this, uh, in this mm. podcast, which would be interesting because I haven't seen it. Um, I, I um, saw it when I was a teenager, so it's okay. been a long time. All right. So I think that's it for our discussion of uh, Wong Kar Wai's 1997 film, Happy Together. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Uh, next time, which will be in about two weeks, we will uh, break them, break our habit a little bit, and talk uh, and do a double, a Korean double feature uh, with two 1997 Korean films, uh, number three and Green Fish. So that'll be a discussion, a tentative discussion for next time. Uh, in the meanwhile, is there anything you'd like to close with, Jason? Uh, yeah, I uh, just like to say, uh, you know, uh, if you have anything to. 
mention um, or if you have anything interesting to add, please uh, visit the website or contact us on tw uh, Twitter. So we're Heroic Purgatory and um, keep watching out for uh, our reviews on V Cinema. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, thank you very much for listening and uh, see you next time. <laughs>